the audio quality is not going to be that great. But. You have to talk loud today. Abba Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your presence in this room. Lord, even when we are not aware of it, you are present and at work. My prayer right now is that as we sit here in this moment at this time, that our hearts would be open to your presence, that our ears would be open to your voice, that our minds would be open to the truth. Holy Spirit, we, we choose right now in this moment to turn our attention toward you, I'm so glad you're here, Holy Spirit. I'm so glad that you've been, you've been thinking about this moment for a long, long time. You have things that you want to do, Holy Spirit, and I, my, I humbly ask that you would help me not to get in your way, that you would do whatever it is that you want to do in these next few minutes. Speak the things that need to be spoken. Uncover the things that need to be uncovered. Lead us and guide us into all truth. That's what Jesus promised us that you would do, Holy Spirit. Convict us of sin. Convince us of the saving power of the cross of Jesus. Lead us to the fountain that never runs dry. Let our souls be deeply satisfied in the wells of salvation. Right now, class, I want to encourage you, just as your eyes are closed, to pray some version of that prayer for yourself, just to just, here I am, Holy Spirit. I want you to kind of even picture him as a, as a person in this room, because he is in this room. And sometimes engaging our imaginations helps us to engage with reality. So I want you to picture him as a, as a being, as a person in this room somewhere. And that he is in this room and he is doing things and saying things. And we need to turn our attention to him. He is the third person of the Trinity. He's in our midst. He's inside each and every one of you. He is the one that shows us the things that Jesus taught us. He reminds us of the things that Jesus taught us. The Bible says that he reveals to us everything that Jesus bought for us on the cross.
I, I think if we all spent a minute of, of every day kind of doing that, recognizing the Lord's presence in our, in our lives, His constant, unchanging presence in our world, that it would change the way we engage with the world. We're meant to be living our lives in cooperation and partnership with the Holy Spirit all the time. If you look at Jesus' ministry, you'll see that that's what he did. He was constantly stepping into partnership with what his Father was doing by his Spirit in any given moment. He would walk down a street because God told him to walk down that street. He would engage with people because God told him to engage with people. And Jesus did not do things that the Holy Spirit was not doing. When we see things like uh, later on in the book of Acts, when the uh, apostles Peter and John were going up to the temple, okay, you know the story? How many of you know the old... The old uh, uh, Sunday school songs. None of you know the old Sunday school songs anymore. You got it? Walking and leaping and praising God. Okay, there's there's a whole there's a there's there's a story there's a song about about that story where where they walk in and they say they and Peter Peter fixes his eyes on the guy and he walks over and the guy's asking for money. He's begging and he's been begging for thirty plus years. Okay, because he can't walk. He's lame. And he's been sitting there in the temple courts for 30 years begging for money. And Peter sees him and walks over to him and says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. He grabs hold of the guy's hand, lifts him up. The man stands on his feet. The book of Acts says that his feet and ankles became strengthened instantly. And then he's running around, walking, leaping, praising God. Oh, I can walk, I can walk, right? Like he's freaking out, as any of you would if you had spent 30 years begging. And now all of a sudden you're, you go from disabled to abled, right? It would, it's a, can you imagine what it must have been like for this person? But something we often miss is that that man sitting there for 30 years means Jesus walked right past him multiple times without healing him. Why? Why? Is it maybe because he, maybe Jesus was, maybe Jesus, this guy couldn't get to Jesus, and maybe the other times there was a crowd around Jesus too, get, too big for this guy to penetrate since he's, since he's laying, and then maybe Jesus is walking in with just a few disciples, and, and he can find, and Jesus can finally hear him um, ask for a healing. Maybe he never asked. Maybe the crowd was too large, although Jesus didn't have that problem when blind Bartimaeus called out to him because the crowd was very large, and Jesus is like, shut up, everybody, and he went and walked over there, and, and even though they're telling him, dude, shut up, you're being loud and annoying, Bartimaeus is like, I don't care, son of David, have mercy on me, right? Like, so and Jesus, Jesus turned. So maybe, maybe, I mean, we don't know. The, the answer is we don't know. But what we do know is that now God heals this man. So it isn't that God didn't care about this man or that God didn't want to heal him. It's just that what the Holy Spirit does, the Holy Spirit is not the force, okay? He's not, he's not a mystical energy field. He is a person. He is, an, he is, he is a dynamic and, and sovereign personality, and he does what he wants to do when he wants to do it for his own reasons, and we don't always understand what those reasons are. 
Our job isn't to try and figure out those reasons. Our job is to be so in tune with the Spirit that when He moves, we move. When He speaks, we speak. This is one of the issues we have when it comes to ministry wherever we go, is that the Holy Spirit might be highlighting somebody like, hey, this guy, right? And we're so like wrapped up in our own stuff and not listening to him that we walk right past people. Now, I'm not saying Jesus did that. He did not do that. Jesus was perfectly attuned with the Holy Spirit all the time. But also, just because someone's there doesn't mean that God is wanting to do something in that person's life in that particular moment. I probably shouldn't say it like that. I should say maybe it's not their moment. Maybe they're not ready. We don't know. We don't understand. That's not the point. The point is we need to be in, con- in contact and, and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit at any given moment. So I want to encourage you. I say all that to encourage you to open your mind and your heart to the whole voice of the Holy Spirit at any given time. Whenever you walk into a specific place. I remember hearing um, worship leader, what's her name? Kim Walker, okay, Kim Walker Smith, whatever her name is now, um, uh, talk about how she she tries to maintain at all times an awareness of the presence of God, an awareness of the the move of the Holy Spirit, and that if she ever finds that she has gotten so focused on something else that she has lost her awareness of the presence of God, that she doesn't matter where she is, what she's doing— she stops right then and there and says, oh, oh, reconnect me. That is a practice that goes back a long way in Christian tradition, and there's a book written about it by, it's actually the letters of a, of a, of a, a monk called Father Lawrence, and, and the book is called The Practice of the Presence of God. Great book, short book, easy to read. I'd recommend every single one of you read it. The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence, Friar Lawrence. Great, great book. And and that's what he did his whole life is he just maintained a conscious connection with the Holy Spirit all the time. That's what he did. And when he would find himself in sin or find himself doing something that he knew the Lord wasn't, then he would recognize, oh, there was some disconnection between me and God in that moment because that's what I act like when I don't have Jesus in my awareness. But when I do have Jesus in my awareness, I don't act like that. I act like Jesus. And so he would stay. And so he talked about one of his main jobs at the monastery where he lived was to do the dishes, which he hated doing. But he invited God into his dish doing and he said, and that kitchen became a temple of the Holy Spirit. And, that, and then it became absolute delight for him to wash the dishes. Why? Because this is an opportunity for me to connect more deeply with the Holy Spirit. And he turned them, all of the tasks that he didn't want to do into places of encounter where he's inviting the Holy Spirit in. And, and amazing and wonderful things would happen where God would speak deep things to him, where he would experience the presence of God in new ways. While he's doing the dishes, which is hard for me to believe because I hate doing them as well. But, uh, but maybe if I began to practice the presence of God, that would be an, uh, a really important thing. There, we need to be a people who are incorporating practices into our lives. It's not just enough to have good knowledge in our heads. 
because you're not just a head on a stick, in case you didn't notice. You are an embodied being. You are a creature, and you are a creature of habit. That's what you are. You're not formed just by the information that comes through your ears and eyes and nose, but we don't really even pay attention to that. But, uh, but you're not informed just by the information that's, that, that comes in. The things that change you are the things you choose to do over and over again over a long period of time. Okay? We understand that when it comes to things like how many of you are, are athletes in any way, shape, or form? Yeah? Okay. Why do they have you practice the same stuff over and over again? Exactly. Right. Muscle memory. And if you get a little thing wrong with the way you throw a ball or the way you do whatever it is that you do in that, then, then they correct it, right? I had a, a, a man who was a coach in my life, and, and, and he said, practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent. So if you practice wrong, you're going to do it wrong. Because you've built a wrong muscle memory, and it is really hard to unlearn muscle memory, right? Well, Christianity is the exact same way, and we need to approach our life in Jesus along the same lines. What ways are we building spiritual muscle memory? See, the way that our brains work is we are constantly creating new neural connections and neural pathways. That's how our brains work. But the beautiful thing about our brains, and this is why we get good at things that we do over a long period of time, there's a book somewhere, I don't even know who wrote it, but it says that if you practice anything, if you intentionally practice anything for 10,000 hours, you will become an expert at it. It doesn't matter what it is, because the brain is so, so plastic and so moldable that if you put enough time and energy into it, you can become good at anything, even if you're not, even if you're not good at it that like you know just by nature you can become good at anything you want to become good at you can become an expert in anything you want to become an expert at but it requires 10,000 hours why because that's how long it takes to draw and redraw and redraw and redraw and redraw and redraw those neural pathways and connections so that they become hardwired so that it becomes second nature but we don't approach our Christian faith in that way. This is why we need to be reading our Bibles every day. This is why we need to be praying every day. This is why we need to be praying prayers that we ourselves did not write. And we need to be praying them over and over and over again. I, don't, I didn't bring my prayer liturgy handout with me. Otherwise, we would go that way. Someday, maybe we will, depending on what the Holy Spirit leads us to do. Who taught you how to pray? Our parents. Did they? Oh, my parents. Okay, what did they teach you? They just taught me to like pray like when I was really little, pray before I ate, and then sure. pray before I went to bed, and then as I got older, it evolved from there. Sure, but did they, they taught you to pray, but did they teach you how? That is a great thing because that's what Jesus did for his disciples, right? So they told you to pray the Lord's Prayer? They like, I don't know, when I was a kid, we would just like, like how the Lord's Prayer has like times of thanks, times mm -hmm. of ask, like the parts of the Lord's Prayer. Wonderful. Yes. Kind 
Absolutely. For a long time, this we've gotten away from this, unfortunately, at my house, but for a long time, because I, because I began to become aware of this reality that I need to be instituting practices into my life and the life of my kids, we would pray the Lord's Prayer at the dinner table every time. Anytime we prayed together as a family, we would say a prayer over the meal or over each other or whatever, and then we would say, and then I would say, now let us pray the Lord the prayer the Lord taught us to pray. And we would pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, the kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is. Right? Okay. Uh, absolutely. The Lord's Prayer is both a model of prayer, like here's the pieces that a good prayer time should have in it, from praise to thanksgiving to a prayer for for uh, provision to an asking for forgiveness for a prayer that keeps us away from, you know, that yes, it's great as a model prayer, but it's also great as a prayer to pray. And we in the Pentecostal world, we tend not to pray prayers that other people wrote. In fact, it feels weird. Have you ever had somebody like put a prayer on the screen and say, let's all pray this together. And then you're like, everybody's like, like just echoing the words. You know, what's funny to me is that it feels weird to pray a prayer someone else wrote, but we sing songs everyone else wrote a million times over, right? And that doesn't feel weird at all. We're constantly, you know, looking on the screen and singing the words that are on the screen. We do that constantly without a second thought. But if somebody puts a prayer up there and says, pray this prayer with me, we're all kind of like, uh, I don't know what to do with my hands, right? <laughs> so it's just weird for us. But that has been the practice of the church since the beginning. Like I just said, Jesus gave his disciples a prayer to pray. When they said, Jesus, teach us to pray, and why did they say that, do you think? Jesus, teach us to pray. Why did they ask for that? Did they not know how to pray the way Jesus prayed? Absolutely. They didn't. And Jesus' prayers worked. <laughs> right? When Jesus says, Father, raise this person from the dead, boom! They were raised from the dead. There was, you know, that just happened, right? And so, and so for them... To say Jesus teaches how to pray made sense, <laughs> right? I mean, think about it for a second. It's like, yeah, absolutely. I want to do that, <laughs> right? And that's when Jesus said, when you pray, say. Now, he didn't say, here's a great outline of prayer. I'm not saying it isn't an outline of prayer. It is. But that's not what he said. What he said was, when you pray, say. And he gave them the words to say. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been saying those words. Why? Because it's what Jesus told us to do. And do you think Jesus told us to do it for no reason? If Jesus had wanted us to always pray prayers that just came up from our own heart and our whatever, Jesus would have told us that. He didn't tell us that. And he did tell us to pray like that because there's other places where Jesus talks about prayer and he doesn't include a prayer to pray. For instance, when you pray, go into the inner room, close the door, and the one who sees you in secret will reward you, right? That's what, that's, that what, there was no further instruction in prayer other than do this by yourself, right? Something that would be interesting, and I'm not going to do it right now, but something that would be interesting is to go and look and see if, when Jesus says, when you pray, is, is that plural or singular? Because in the Greek... They use two different words 
for you, as in you individually, and y'all. In Texas, they have those two words, and we don't really have those two words up here. But and in the Greek, there is singular you, and there is plural you, and, and looking to see which it is, is often extremely helpful in the Bible. Uh, you would ask me that. Um, uh, for instance, it says you, but I'm pretty sure it means plural. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That is y'all. Okay? That's y'all. That's not you. That's y'all. There's another verse that says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and that's singular. But later on, in a different place, I don't know if it's later on, but in a different place, the Apostle Paul says, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about you. He's talking about y'all. You, as a church, as a people, are a temple of the Holy Spirit, together, corporately. Which makes sense, because then he goes on to talk about how we're each living stones built together for the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Oh, oh, oh. Okay? And we miss it because in English translations, it doesn't do that. It doesn't say you all, or you, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make it clear to us. This is one of the ways that we talked about last week when we talked about the original language. This is one of the ways that our inter- our um our translations get in our way because the English language does certain things really well and, and the Greek language does certain things really well and they aren't necessarily the same things. <laughs> there are things that are hard to convey in the English language and easy to convey in the Greek language. For instance, Ephesians chapter 5, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, the word be, to us, that sounds like, okay, Ross, I'm going to come over here. I'm going to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Now, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You've completed that, right? That, yeah. that, okay, no. The word is be filled now and continue to be filled. So maybe we better stay filled with the Holy Spirit. That would be better, but that's not what's in there. It's just be. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the Apostle Paul was saying was remain filled, continually be, be filled. But when you go look in, in, in Ephesians chapter 5 in our English translations, I've never seen an English translation that doesn't just say be. But it's not reflecting the deeper meaning of the word from the Greek. All right. I don't know how I got off on the on the prayer, the, the, the spiritual practices tangent. But spiritual practices are absolutely important, and they're very specific spiritual practices that the church has practiced from the beginning because Jesus realizes that we are physical beings, creatures of habit, that we need not just information, but also something to do to form spiritual muscle memory that makes us more like Jesus every day. Okay? I'm going to give you what those are. Ready to write those down? Number one is praying a wise liturgy. The New Testament believers prayed the Psalms, they prayed the Scripture, and then they invented prayers 
that they would all say together. The Apostle Paul records lots of those in his writing. Sometimes they would sing them. Sometimes they would just say them. Okay, but praying a wise liturgy, that is something we need to do regularly. I would encourage every day where we're praying prayers that are not just our own prayers. We're praying prayers that are given to us. Yeah. Yes. Now, should we still pray our own prayers? Heck yes, we should. Absolutely, we should. Every day we should. But I would say at least as much time as we spend praying our own prayers, we need to be praying other people's prayers. And when I say other people's prayers, I mean mostly scripture. My prayer liturgy that I, would, that I use personally is about 90% scripture. There's maybe two or three prayers in there that have been written by church fathers, etc. Like the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Anybody know that prayer? I'm going to look it up because it's like the best prayer ever. And it's a perfect example of a prayer I would never write myself. Doesn't it go, make me an instrument of... Yes, yes, it is how it begins. Okay. The prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, let me find it. Okay, for instance, I'm looking at my my liturgy, okay? It starts with, uh, with an address, and then it goes to quotations from the Psalms. And then the Jesus prayer, which is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Then there is an old church prayer called the Confession of Sin, which you find in the, in the Common Book of Prayer, which is the, the Anglican Book of Prayer. Then there's the prayer of forget, for the forgiveness of others, where I'm... Oh, then there's the Lord's Prayer, forgive me. And then there's the prayer for forgiveness of others, because the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. But... You know, not, I, I, at least for me, I don't really forgive those that are trespassing against me as I say that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I needed to add an extra prayer in there for me where I was consciously giving, speaking forgiveness over anyone who may have hurt me or whatever in any way. So I needed that in my life. All right. And then there's another psalm. And then I pray Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 22. And then I pray Psalm 23. And then I pray Psalm 91. And then I pray prayers for my family. And then it says, pray in tongues for at least five minutes. That's a part of my prayer liturgy. Then I pray Psalm 103. <laughs> and then I pray, uh, then I pray in you know, intercession, whatever's on my heart at that particular time. And I have a list of people that I'm praying for. Uh, and then it says, be silent. Mm-hmm. So then I shut up for a while. Because that's a good idea, especially for me. Then I pray the Beatitudes. Then I pray the prayer of St. Francis, which is this. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that I receive, it is in pardoning that I am pardoned, and it is in dying that I am born again to eternal life. Amen. That is a great prayer, and that is not a prayer I would have ever written on my own. (laughs) That's not a Josh prayer, (laughs) 
that is a prayer I need in my life. Because if I can begin to live in this place, I can begin to be formed like Jesus in such beautiful ways. That's one of the last prayers I pray because the way this prayer liturgy is set up is it's set up to start kind of out here where I'm at today, go into the presence of Jesus and sit quietly with Jesus for a while, and then go back out into the world carrying the presence of Jesus with me. That's how the prayer liturgy is. And someday I will bring it and we will walk through it all um, because it's just good stuff. Uh, so praying a wise liturgy, that's number one. Number two, the, the communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. The Eucharist, is, I've, heard, I've heard that's another name for it, but why do they call it the Eucharist? Is that what it's called biblically or historically? Or? Uh, it's, it's Latin. Oh. I don't know what it means, honestly. I, I mean, I could probably guess, but I'm not going to try. It's Latin. Somebody Google it. What, is Eucharist, what does the word Eucharist mean? Um, uh, but it's Latin. It's an, it's an old church phrase. It just means the same thing. It's, just, it, it, it's the same thing as communion, same thing as the Lord's Supper, the, the Lord's table. Did somebody get Eucharist? It's spelled E-U, by the way. Somebody Google that, Eucharist. And tell us all what it means. All right? Jesus said, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And the Apostle Paul said that whenever we celebrate communion in the Eucharist, we're remembering the Lord's death until he comes. So that is what we are doing. We are beholding the cross. There's several things going on in the meal. Did, so, did you look it up? Did somebody, what's it say? So the word, it's, it's not Latin, it's Greek. Forgive me. It goes back even further than that. You, the word, the you in Greek is good, and charis is grace. So I probably could have guessed that if I would thought about it long enough. But uh, So we're receiving good grace. That's what we're doing. And, and we're stepping in. Now, in some denominations and fellowships, they actually believe that this is where your sins are forgiven, is as you receive it. We don't have biblical reason to believe that or understand that. Um, but we do believe that something supernatural is taking place as we take communion. You cannot, by the way, take communion by yourself. Communion is doing two things. It's bringing us all to the same table, which is a big deal. And we are all partaking of the same body and the same blood, and that is Jesus. So when I look across the table at you and I see that you're partaking of the body and blood of Jesus, the same Jesus that I'm partaking of, it's a lot harder for me to hate you. Are you with me? I never thought about it that way, but then but my wheels are spinning in my head and I guess that's true. Yeah, because he's receiving Jesus too and I'm receiving Jesus. And the same Jesus is in him that's in me. So I can't hate him. I've got to think differently about him. Than I did before. Uh, also, there's an acknowledgement that when you're coming to receive good grace, you're being humble enough before all these folks to admit, I need good grace. Yeah. 
It's a place of humility. It's a place of coming before the cross, admitting our need for Jesus, and physically partaking him. Now, in the Catholic tradition, they believe that the, that the priest actually performs a miracle to transform the elements physically into the body and blood of Jesus within the body of the person that is eating it. I'm, I'm not going that far. <laughs> but we are receiving the body and blood of Jesus when we take the Eucharist. And when our, bo- when our bodies have done their work and absorbed the body and blood of Jesus, we become the body of Christ. Okay, That's the whole idea. And that's why at our church, up until COVID anyway, we practiced the Eucharist together every Sunday. And not only that, communion was our, was our altar call. I didn't call people down to receive prayer very often, although the altars are always open and people can receive prayer. And I also very rarely have people raise their hands to pray a prayer of salvation because uh, I have lots of reasons for that we're not going to go into today. But I call everyone to the table to receive good grace. And I'll say, if the Holy Spirit has been dealing with you about the stuff that I've been saying today, you need to come to the table to receive good grace so that Jesus can do what he needs to do in your heart so that the things we've talked about today can be lived out in a spiritual reality. So if I've been talking about thou shalt not steal and you have been stealing, whether uh, whether actually stealing things or just stealing time from your boss because you're on your phone or stealing your presence from those that that it belongs to, such as your own family or the people that you're living in in community with. Thou shalt not steal is a lot bigger than we thought, right? And if the Holy Spirit brings conviction to us in that place that we're like, ow, I'm a thief, I'm a thief, and I never do it. We can come to the cross together because we're all thieves and we never knew it. We can come to the cross together and receive good grace from God so that our sins are forgiven, which we already knew they were in Jesus, but that we, we're, we're applying again. God, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, which is a prayer I pray all the time. Have mercy, O God, and we step in, once again, we step in and say, here I am. Do the work in me that that needs to be done so that I can stop being a thief and begin to look more like you, Jesus. And I'm receiving that grace at the table with everybody else that's at the table because we all need it, right? So praying a wise liturgy and the Eucharist, okay, Another one is Christian fellowship. You guys are getting lots of that because you live in the same building, right? Christian fellowship is something that you practice every single day, and I want to affirm that it is a beautiful and holy thing because we knock each other's rough edges off. That's what we do. And love is only learned through embodied participation. You can't learn to love from a book. You can only learn to love by doing it, by trying it, by being in the same room with someone who's different than you and trying to love them, accepting them when you don't like them, forgiving them when they've hurt you, seeing past their faults and mistakes and seeing the image of God glimmering through the darkness, 
Christian fellowship is required for us to learn how to love, which is the second greatest commandment, is it not? The first great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Jesus said the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We can't learn how to do that in a room on our own or on Facebook. Hallelujah, praise God, glory to Jesus. Or Twitter or Instagram or whatever. Insert your favorite social media site here. There's definitely some things to learn uh, in those realms, but it's not the same as being face-to-face, as being shoulder-to-shoulder. It's not the same. The people that teach us how to love are the people that are closest to us. And when you have somebody in your life that drives you insane, they're a gift from God to you to teach you how to love. So for some of you, I am a gift of God to you to teach you how to love. I understand that. I'm going to be honest. I spent almost my entire drive here asking God to help me with my anger for, against my daughter. She, I, we've just had a couple of rough days. She's 10. And we've had a couple of rough days where we just bonked heads a lot these last two days. And I've been pretty mad at her for the last 48 hours or so. And my whole way here, the Holy Spirit's going, you can't do a good job of telling anything to anybody when all you've got is just this this rage that you just can't, you got to work your way out of it. And I'm going, Holy Spirit, help me. <laughs> Can I be transparent with you? It's hard. And the people we're closest to are the ones that do them, that are the hardest to love sometimes. It's real. So what have we said? These are spiritual practices. Wise liturgy, the Eucharist, Christian fellowship. The last one we'll talk about today, there's actually about 13 or 14 that we could talk about, but the last one we'll talk about today is uh, servanthood. Greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all, Jesus said. This is another one that Master's Commission students get to learn quite well. It's how to wash the feet of people Jesus loves. And I will say this to you. If any of you are considering a lifetime as in, in ministry, okay, if that's what you want to do as a vocation, I want you to understand that what you are looking forward to is not fame, glory, uh, status, authority. You're looking forward to a lifetime of servanthood. Looking forward to a lifetime of washing the feet of people whose feet really stink. It's true. Of taking up Jesus' servanthood mantle and walking in humility learning how to love people that are difficult to love, learning how to love people when they disrespect you, even though you've given your whole life to serving them. 
and it stinks a lot of the time. Just be honest. Sometimes it's amazing. Sometimes it's awesome. There are definitely moments where I'm like, why do I get to do this for a living? This is fantastic. Oh, by the way, you're not going to make any money either, but that's something else. (laughs) But why do I get to, oh my gosh, Jesus, I get to spend my days, hours, and minutes of my life doing this? This is incredible. I love it. That's, I'm going to say 20% of the time. That's, That's how I feel. The other 80% of the time, it is, Jesus, how did you trick me into this? (laughs) Why am I doing this with my life? I could be doing so many other things that would be so much easier, that would cost so much less to myself and my family. What was I thinking saying yes to you? That's kind of a bleak picture, isn't it? Right? The 20% makes the 80% worth it. It was just the truth. And I also know that every single time I say yes to Jesus, even though I don't want to, that there's, there is a reward at the other end of this, where Jesus is going to say, your attitude sucked, but you still did it. Don't think Jesus would say, my attitude sucked. <laughs> uh, I've had Jesus slap me upside the head and use language that we wouldn't think Jesus would use, at least in my own head. I mean, it says that Jesus has a sense of humor, so... He does. Jesus, the thing for me is Jesus speaks to me in my own language. So when I need to be slapped upside the head and yelled at, he's good at that. He's good at that. And sometimes he likes to shock me a little with the way that he encounters me. I need it. Maybe you guys are all holy and you don't need that kind of a shock. And uh, you're going to be good. And Jesus is never going to surprise you. But I would say this. If Jesus hasn't surprised you lately, you haven't been spending much time with him. Jesus is surprising. Jesus is shocking. Jesus is uncontrollable. Jesus is no tame lion, okay? Jesus is who Jesus is. And if Jesus is behaving by all the rules that you thought that Jesus should behave by, you're not probably, you're, you're, you need to push in a little more. Because Jesus is shocking. Jesus is controversial. Jesus is provocative. Jesus is offensive at times. If I don't have a God that can offend me, then I have created a God in my own image. And that's the one I'm serving. Jesus comes along and just kicks the prop up from under everything that I thought was true and says, nope, right here. That's when I know I'm on the right track. (laughs) When Jesus confronts me and says, I'm not that pretty little doll that you put in that box, I am myself. That's when I know, yep, I'm listening well. Jesus is good. He's not a tame lion. C.S. Lewis is wonderful. He's not. No, it's important. He is sovereign. He's holy. He's in charge. And I serve him. Not the other way around. So if Jesus wants to change my entire political worldview, he's allowed. 
He's allowed. And he's done that, too, by the way. <laughs> he has turned me upside down and inside out, made me think things that I would have pointed at before and said, that's just not okay. Well, yeah. Guess what? Jesus gets to do that if he wants to. Okay. So those are, did I give you four? Yes. Okay, that's good. We'll stay, we'll stick with those four. Any questions? This is not what I planned on talking about at all today. We've got about 20 minutes. I can go back. What I wanted to do was tell the overarching story of God from the beginning until uh, all the way through until the end. That's what I wanted to do today. Um, but in 20 minutes? I was going to tell you the whole thing. I mean, we can start. We'll just, I'll just have to do the shortest possible version of it. But before we do that, I want to open up. Are there questions, comments, thoughts? If you would like a copy of that liturgy, I would love to give you one. I would be happy to give you one. I don't have any with me, but... Um, but, uh, but or I can just email it, and you can have it in electronic format. So that, uh, I would like one if it's possible. Certainly. I will email the PDF to... Vicky and she can make sure everybody gets it. Okay. Uh, any other questions, comments? More and more. Those are welcome as well. <laughs> Always. You look like you have something on your mind. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's. No, I, I don't have time. I'm not even going to go there. Okay. Let's talk about the Nephilim. I'm just kidding. Percy <laughs> <laughs> Jackson is real. <laughs> Oh, uh, well, yes and no, but let's, let's, uh, oh man, I knew you would do that to me. All right. Is it Riley? Yeah. Megan? It starts with a J? Yeah. I want to say Jana, is that right? Yeah, that is so crazy. <laughs> okay, thank you, Lord, for that. The, first year. Yeah, the thing is, oh man, that's going to be even worse. All right, everybody just remind me your names, everybody, because I'm... Oh, okay, I'm yeah. just, <laughs> wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember his name? Uh, Isaiah. I haven't been working on everybody else's name. I do not remember your name. It's completely gone. <laughs> I figured. Sorry. That's why I asked. No. Oh. Well, please, then tell me, please, because I'm sorry. I feel bad, Jordan. No, I really do. I feel terrible. Right. I've known you for two years, right? No, you're right. Uh, well, I feel I really bad. the second year. I feel bad. I'm sorry. I'm a horrible person. Okay. <laughs> but I really do try and remember people's names, and, and it makes me feel bad when I don't. All right. Um, Uh, that's a good question. Have you read it la- lately? Yeah, I've heard it. I mean, that particular <laughs> I verse. I said it in my Devo this morning, the reason he's asking. Well, Jeremiah 29 11 is, is one of those verses that we love to quote, but that we forget about. That we forget that there is a context that we should probably pay a little bit of attention to. Uh, and I actually don't like Jeremiah 29 11 as much as I like Jeremiah 29 10 and 12. Okay, so Jeremiah 29 is a letter to the exiles of Israel. 
Okay, that's what it is. It's a letter to the exiles of Israel. It's people that have been that have left Israel. I mean, God has taken them out, sent them to Babylon, right? And uh, that he and they are gone. And God has said, "This this is what this is why I sent you there. This is why you're there. You're there because you're being because the sin your sin and the sin of your fathers." has removed my protection from you. And so you are in the midst of, of this time of judgment. And that's why you're there. Okay? So, yeah, I'm, I'm angry with you. But let's, can, can we just actually back up just a second? Because I want to talk about judgment for just a second. Can we do that? Almost every single time that God judges a people, okay, almost every single time, what God does is just lets them go to do what they wanted to do. That's what judgment looks like from the Father. The Father's going, no, don't run to that cliff. Stop, that's a cliff. You're going to fall off. Don't run to that cliff. Don't run to that cliff. Don't run to that cliff. And they're still going, 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 and he can't convince them to stop. So he finally is like, fine. And as they're falling off the cliff, they're like, God, why'd you do this to me? That's what judgment looks like everywhere in the Bible, including even the flood. Okay, we kind of think of the flood as like God going, all right, I'm ticked off. Open the floodgates, right? And then he's like, no, uh-uh, no, that's not it at all. Mankind was getting worse and worse and worse. Mankind was destroying the planet. And God is like, if I don't do something, the entirety of my creation is going to be destroyed and all humanity will die. So God says, is there somebody, somebody that has faith? And he finds Noah and, Noah and, and he says, you and your family, hear me, Noah, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I need you to get in a boat. <laughs> And I need you to, and, and, you know, save yourself and your family because I'm going to let them win. I'm going to let them have what they want, which is chaos. And I'm going to take my hands of provision and protection away. And the earth is going to be destroyed. And I would like for some of creation to be kept safe. So I'm asking you, I'm asking you to step into that boat and protect some of creation for me because I don't want everything to be destroyed. So Noah and his sons and his wife and their wives and all the animals that he could get into that boat, they all got into that boat and then it happened. Because if you look in Genesis chapter 6, which is where we learn about the Nephilim, by the way. Uh, God says, I will, my spirit will not wrestle with man forever. Your days will be 120 years. So God is like, listen, I'm going to try and stop you for another 120 years. And if it doesn't work, I'm going to let you have what you've been asking for. I'm going to stop protecting you. I'm going to stop holding back the waters of chaos. And they are going to come pouring out over the land and all of you are going to die because I have warned you and warned you and warned you. 
The death is the result of your disobedience. Okay, and then when Noah and all, God shuts the door to the boat because here it comes and the earth is destroyed and everything in it except for Noah and his. Okay, that's the story. It's the story of God saving humanity from itself. It is not the story of an angry God pouring down fiery vengeance and justice upon the world. That's not it. We, and we have read it wrong. And if you, I'm telling you, this is the reality of the story. Okay. Why do I mention that? Because that's where Israel is in Jeremiah 29. They are in the midst of judgment. They have been... They have been walking out of God's protection by serving other idols, etc., for a long, long time. And God finally says, if you don't want me, I'll just leave. But when I leave, my protection goes with me. And that's what happened is in comes the enemy because they were outside of God's protection. They did not stay where God could keep them safe. Okay? When they're in worshiping God and inviting God to be a, a part of their lives, then God would pour out grace and protection and favor. But when they're saying, we don't want you, God, go away, God, God finally said, I get the hint, goodbye, and he steps away. And they get carried off into exile. But we have people, people like Ezekiel, people like Jeremiah, people like others who are prophetic intercessors praying, God, don't forget your promises. God, God, don't forget what you told Abraham you would do. God, there's still a remnant that loves you. And there was. And so God being the softy that he is, and he is. In fact, God several times in the Old Testament tells, don't pray for them because I want to wipe them out. And if you pray for them, I'm going to have to be nice and I don't want to be nice. That's why Jonah was so mad at God. That's why Jonah ran from God. You know, did, Jonah didn't run from God because he didn't want to, because he was afraid of Nineveh. Like we kind of feel like, oh, Jonah was afraid. And so he ran away. No, that's not what it is. Jonah knew if I go to Nineveh and I tell people that you are going to destroy their city, if even a few of them ask you not to, you're not going to do it. And I really want to see Nineveh destroyed. So I'm not going. That was, that's the story. Go read Jonah. Jonah's like, I don't want to go preach because then they might repent and they got it coming, God. It'd be like, imagine if somebody said to you, I want you to go and I want you to preach to Osama bin Laden. And I want you to preach the gospel to him because he's going to turn. And you're like, I don't want him to turn. I want him to get burned. I want SEAL Team 6 to go in there and take his butt out. That's what I want. And God's like, no, no. I want you to go in and preach to Osama bin Laden. No! Right? Okay, that's Jonah. Because he doesn't want them saved. Kind of makes Jonah about to be a bad guy, doesn't it? Like, no, I won't do it. Because I know you, God, you're a softie. And if they say they're sorry, you're going to give them another chance. Which is exactly what happened, by the way. And, Mo, and Noah, or Jonah was ticked off that it happened that way. But here we are. God's got righteous intercessors pleading for Israel before God. And so God makes a promise in Jeremiah 29, 11, that if you'll come back to me, you'll find me. Right? That's what he says. Jeremiah 29. Let's start with verse 10. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is his response to the righteous intercessor. 
When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. He finally relents. Okay, fine. 70 years, and then I'll get you back. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope in a future. That's the part we know. But we've extricated it from <laughs> the context. Verse 12, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. So there's a couple of things that we are missing when we just quote that verse in absentia, when we just put it out there, okay? Uh, first of all, repentance is required for that future and that hope. It's not just a blanket statement that we can just say to anybody or hand somebody a card that says, God has a hope and a future for you. <laughs> now, does God have a hope and a future for everyone? I absolutely believe that he does. That's, I'm not saying that's not true. But what I'm saying is we're leaving out the fact that they, need to, they have to come back to God and find him or else that hope and future are never going to come about. That hope and future are directly correlated with their return to the Lord. So we can prophesy that over folks, but we need to follow it with, so seek the Lord, because if you will seek him with your whole heart, you will find him. That's the context of Jeremiah 29, 11. We shouldn't do just half of it. It's literally written on my church wall. <laughs> and I covered it with a screen <laughs> because I was like, ah, because it was in there before me. It was just Jeremiah 29, 11 was written. And, and it, I would have gone all the way to 13. Because that's a more coherent message that goes beyond just the children of Israel and reaches to anyone, because God is still that same God. God is still the God who makes plans for his kids, and if they walk in partnership and connection with him, we will see those plans come forward. Okay, Even when they've screwed up, they can always come home, and God will bring those plans about. That's the message, that this is the kind of God we serve. We serve the kind of God that even we're in the midst of rebellion is still saying to us, if you'll come home, everything I will, I, you know, I have beautiful things for you. That's the kind of God we serve. And that is a beautiful, beautiful message. But we can't expect to continue living in rebellion and see that resolve. And that's the half of the message that's mostly missing from our, our Harmonk cards. Is that one of, the, one of those instances where it's y'all instead of you? Probably, but I don't know. That's Hebrew. I'm not as good with Hebrew as I am with Greek. I never took a Hebrew class. <laughs> yeah. No, I never did. I, I kind of wish I had, and maybe someday I will, but... Uh, yeah, I didn't. All right. Are we... Are we good? That was my that was that was my context of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. What are you thinking about? Yeah, I understand that. My fingers, I can barely like 
sorry, it was my turn. Also, also, I was thinking about, I've, I've heard other people explain the whole, how a lot of people don't, like, use the full context of Jeremiah 29, 11, and I never really, like, necessarily agreed with any of them, because every single time I've heard anyone else talk about it, they'd be like, You're, people are using it out of context, God wasn't talking to you. Well, and, that's true. Well, which I know it's true, but like they just get, I don't know. The way you explained it, I really like The difference is, and the important difference is, yeah, no, that he wasn't talking to you. Yeah. That's true. But this still tells us who he is. Right. And we can't miss that because God doesn't change. So we're okay to take, to see who God is in that passage and then say he's still that God. Yeah. Right? What we're not okay with is to say, God made this promise to me. No, he didn't. He didn't make that promise to you. Right. But that is the kind of God he is. So it is, it is, it is totally okay for us to say, to say, I know this is who you are, God, and therefore I can trust you that if I, if I repent and, I, and, I am, and I'm standing in cooperation with you, that you do have a plan for me. I don't know what that plan is, yeah. but it's for my good. Now, the thing is, that doesn't necessarily mean, <laughs> okay, yeah, it's for your good, and that's great, but, um, you know, uh, uh, for our good might mean that uh, we, we die. <laughs> uh, does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, because for our good also means... Uh, that we, that, you know, uh, G, uh, the Apostle Paul said, for me to die is gain. Right? So if we're in Christ, even our death is good. It's like saying Romans 8.28, God works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's like saying that that means nothing bad will ever happen to us. And that's the opposite of what it means. <laughs> what it means is bad stuff is going to happen to you, is happening to you, but none of it will be in vain. That God's in the midst of it. That God didn't cause it, but that God's turning it to do beautiful things in your life. Does that make sense to everyone? I hope. I hope it does. Yay, nay, nine. Nine. <laughs> That's it for today, I suppose, unless y'all have something else. Nope. Thanks. Thanks for the snaps, man. Appreciate it. It's a good word. So I want to ask you, I, I want to go, I want to do Sermon on the Mount. I mean, that's, uh, that's really super important.